everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right. Today's podcast is titled "The Realignment of the Center," and to talk about it with me is Colin Wright. Colin, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's good to be back again. Thank you for having me. All right. So, just to give you guys a brief background, why are we talking about this? So, I'm going to share a photo that I got of Colin Sutter. So, basically, Colin had tweeted this photo out, and then obviously, he's now converted into a mug, so you can go and buy it. So, this is a very interesting <laughs> picture, as you see on the screen. It says, "My political journey," where he starts with 2008, where he says this was the center, and then this was Colin. <laughs> this was he's still liberal. smiling. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Then in 2012, the center, you're closer to the center and your fellow liberals are running away. <laughs> or at least what I thought yeah. were my fellow liberals. Uh, yeah. And now <laughs> you're right of center and your fellow liberals are now woke progressives calling you a bigot now. So, so first, before <laughs> I ask any other questions, and now that I've shown everybody who's going to be watching the audio version, well, I'll leave the link to the mug and you can watch it uh, yourselves in the description of the podcast. <laughs> but Colin, let's start like this. First, explain this itself. Yeah, I mean, I think this has been my experience, and I think it's not just something unique to me. When I posted the the cartoon, you know, it went really viral. It actually, went viral several times when I posted it at different different times. Each time, it's gotten you know close to three thousand retweets. And this comments are extremely polarized. It's either people saying like, this this is me. This explains everything, my entire experience. And then there's other people who are just gonna take a really academic approach and be like, well, you're suggesting the right didn't move. You know, it's, it's a political cartoon. It's not gonna take in all the nuance of a dissertation that you could possibly have. And I certainly don't think the right has stayed completely in one place the whole time, but at least on the issues that I found important, uh, like free speech, um, you know, equal rights. Uh, I always, I used to consider myself a feminist, but that was, you know, when that used to mean just, you know, equality between the sexes. Uh, and on issues of gay rights as well, we've seen how uh, a lot of the gender ideology is sort of erasing all of these things. And with the rise of cancel culture, we don't really have the left supporting free speech as rigorously as they used to. And so on all these really important issues that were formed one of the biggest reasons why I had consistently voted for as, as a Democrat for my entire life, basically. Um, those, all those, those reasons have sort of flipped all of a sudden or become completely irrelevant uh, as, far as, as far as the left is concerned. So uh, the, the cartoon, what, what it shows is that I have stayed in the same place on each of those years and what has really moved has been the ground beneath my feet, where before I considered myself, you know, not super far left. I had some views that were maybe leaning conservative, but when all things considered in aggregate, my my uh, my political views were sort of center left. And without even changing a single position I have, or at least not very much, nothing nothing fundamental or foundational, uh, the the spectrum has sort of shifted to the left, and again, on the issues that I find most important, I'm sure some have, have pushed to the right, uh, but now I sort of find myself closely or more closely aligned with people that are center-right than I'd ever found myself before, and I'm being called, you know, a, a far-right or alt-right Nazi by people who are on the left, just because I'm advocating for the same views that before put me squarely on the left. So 
this cartoon, it's you know, it's an oversimplification, but I think it points at a at a sort of an overarching truth uh, that at least resonates with a lot of people. So, um, yeah, that's that's really that's the explanation for that cartoon. So, so, so the natural follow up would be: What do you think went wrong with the left? Where uh, I mean, if I remember in the 1970s, it was the ACLU that stood up for the right of free expression of the of the white nationalists or or whatever you want to call it i i um you know who wanted to i think it was a march against the jews right uh where they 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 wanted to carry some symbols which were very hateful and it was the aclu that stood up for them and today i just go on their twitter handle and i i cannot yeah. recognize the organization i don't know what's like it, it's it's like they've done a complete u-turn on, on what they stand for what are the fundamentals so what exactly has happened what is this concept creep that has happened in the american left that they are unrecognizable now you know it's just been drilling down on this identitarian movement people are so focused on marginalized identities or identities that they, they purport to be marginalized a lot of them now you can just sort of self-identify into like a lot of the the trans and non-binary identities uh and what these ideologies have done you know they're they're very social constructivists they think that uh, many things are are just social constructs they're not totally real they like to look at things in terms of power dynamics um and these ideas were widely refuted sort of a long time ago uh, when postmodernism first reared its ugly head, uh, but there was it was more in an academic sense, and you know we had like the the Alan Sokol hoax where he was able to debunk some of these postmodern journals by by basically doing what you know James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose and Peter Bogosian did recently uh, with with their um, Sokol squared hoax where they made fake papers to get them published in like gender studies journals. Um, but what the movement has done now is it's sort of hitched these same postmodern ideas onto a, a civil rights movement, or at least giving it the veneer of a civil rights movement. They're sort of, I've described it as a kind of um, ambulance chasing almost, where this ideology has found the one thing that nobody wants to be on the opposite side of, and that was civil rights, gay gay rights. No one wanted to be against gay marriage anymore. The, the right got really spanked on that, and I think rightfully so, in the past when they had these homophobic views, they didn't want gay marriage passed. I was very much for that. Um, and so <laughs> you, you see these same organizations, the ACLU, uh, a lot of these movements that and organizations that were supporting gay rights in the past that turned into these multi-billion dollar organizations. Uh, they're the same names, they have the same flag, and there's, there's more flags now, but they still have the same pride flag. And people associate that with the good guys and, and that was the truth before. They were the good guys. And it's really taking people some time to sort of update their software because that movement has definitely updated their software. It's no longer what it used to be. It's now, it's no longer championing the let everyone be, you know, love who you love. That's beautiful. It's it's really adopting a whole totalizing ideology that's, you know, in the realm of trans stuff that I talk about mostly. Um, where they're saying that, you know, you have to deny the reality of male and female. These are just social constructs. Uh, you can just self-identify into any sex category you want to. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a totalizing ideology, and it's not something that can just really be accepted. You have to really buy into it. And that's, I think, a main difference that uh, from the movement we see now than the movement 
in the past. And now since you have all these organizations that have essentially, uh, that are essentially these billion dollar industries, they're now all sh shuttling all this money that they had, that they were using to fight for things like gay marriage. It's now all being concentrated into these fringe, uh, these, these fringe components where they're basically, um, you know, taking these the smallest subset of people who claim to be oppressed and they're they're putting all the money into these these issues right now, which would be fine if if there was a legitimate case to be made, but they're they've really mired it in sort of this untenable ideology. So that's that's the the current situation, as I see it. So so this is where uh, I find this very fascinating. So uh, obviously, uh, I mean I I follow your work uh, regularly. So this whole social construct business, right? Now, okay, so they say gender is a social construct, and then they tell you to understand the difference between gender and sex. Okay, uh, I, I'm there too. I'm kind of there. But then why is race not a social construct? Race is as real as it gets, for at least in this in this worldview, which, which, which is espoused by these. Also, why is oppression so real? As in, now, what I find very interesting about the subjectivism or the relativism of uh, the American left and uh, and whatever, you know, America is the thought leader in the world. So whatever good ideas, bad ideas come, they're going to come from America and they're going to parasitize the world. That's just the way it is. Uh, now, Sorry about that. Now, I mean, it's, it is what it is. I mean, uh, Indians are suffering uh, because of that till the extent that recently a new Twitter CEO has come and everybody's calling him a Brahmin and that's how ill-informed they are. His surname is Agarwal, he's a Baniya. He's not even a Brahmin caste, by the way, even in the Indian matrix. And that's how ill-informed people are. And, and I was just like, okay, he's not Brahmin though. But no, no, he he's Brahmin for us. Okay, so you just change the whole goalpost again. Hmm. But let's get down to this. So there is an objective truth for the American left. It is just that oppression is that objective truth now. So it's not like they're totally relativistic. They just think oppression is the only thing that matters. And and you just have to look at the entire social matrix through the lens of the oppressor and the oppressed. Now, uh, if I was to look at it as an outsider sitting here in India, in Mumbai, and looking at them, that's a pretty shitty way to live your life. Yeah, I mean, I would even go further. It's not even that oppression is their ground truth. It's the perception of it. And that cannot be even be questioned because the thing that they are focusing on as being the most real is essentially their, their feelings on these issues. That's why we see people don't talk about, you know, this is my experience. They talk about like their lived experience. It makes it seem more, more lofty and you can't question someone's lived experience because they lived it. Uh, even if, you know, people will, will say that they they had a lived experience that, you know, they, they saw the Virgin Mary or something during this part of their life that they were downtrodden and people will have no problem saying that like, well, that was, you know, we don't believe your claims on there. But now we're going to take people's word for it if they'd happen to just sort of tick these intersectional boxes uh, and the person criticizing them is is in a category that's, that's at least viewed to be in a position of power. Uh, when you sort of realize that they're, they're stratifying identities into this hierarchy and they're using your place in that hierarchy to decide who can criticize who and who has more of a uh, direct, I guess, link to, to knowledge and what's true, um, their ideology starts making a lot of sense, you know, in, internal sense, not like, you know, sense in the in the in a way that any sort of objective observer would find convincing. But it sort of has this internal coherence to it. Yeah, but here's the problem: where does one then 
it, the, I'm pretty centrist myself. Like if I do all these political tests, whatever there are available online, it always shows me to be someone who's very centrist and leans libertarian. Now that's how I've always been. It's very yeah, interesting. That's, that's where that's where mine comes out. It's usually left leaning libertarian for me, and it's still yeah. the case too. But they might need to update those because everyone is claiming that I'm far right, but I've yet to see a political compass test that places me where they insist that I that I belong. So. So let's drill down on this because this is the fascinating bit. And this used to be my experience, even when I have, you know, whatever conversations I've had, I've tried to had with people on the American left that the, the, the first reaction is that they come from this mindset where it's, it's a game now. Like I'm supposed to find someone who I'm supposed to hate. So my experience is that if they find out that I'm not, the voter of a political outfit that they're supposed to like in India, they automatically bracket me without knowing my views on anything. Like they, they don't even know my views on social issues or anything for that matter, but they'll bracket me. Now in such a scenario, if you're a centrist, now my experience of someone who's a centrist is in my view, someone who's all over the place who might be left on some issues and on the right on some issues. And that's fine. That's how life is. I thought human beings were complicated, right? We were not all, all ideologues. Now, the thing is, I've always struggled with this myself. The ideologue is far more driven than a person who is the quote-unquote centrist. Centrists are not driven people. They have opinions, but they just maybe go and vote. But they're not activists. The, the the driven people are all these people who are just, you know, I don't know I if this is a word, like one trick ponies, they just have one thing and they, they just obsess over it. And most people in my experience fall into this uh, larger rubric of what we call centrists. They, they're just normal human beings. They might be, you know, left on some issues, but their voting patterns may not necessarily indicate their overall political alignment if you were to map it down in an academic manner. So then how do you, so how did you come to a point where, you know, you? I remember you wrote that tweet thread where you said, I just can't go with these guys because I'm sure if you were to drill down on the right, you will find certain excesses even today in the current right wing whether it's you know the q and all oh, yeah. and all that and you will cringe on that so how does a person in such a scenario decide which side do i go with yeah i mean we're asked to make an impossible choice and the the sort of social stigma that goes along with choosing you know one of two parties to vote for because especially in the u.s i don't actually know the case in in India, but you know, in the US, we essentially are living in a duopoly. We have two candidates that we can vote for. And then we're asked to, you know, distill our very complex and multivariate worldviews. We're asked to distill those down, not even to a place on a spectrum, but a binary decision of, you know, Republican versus Democrat. And then when someone just says, oh, I'm gonna vote for this one side, and then that candidate does something stupid that the person who voted for them would never endorse, you know, then the other side says like, oh, well, you know, we saw that coming. You need to own everything that this entire candidate did as if your voting for them was just this full endorsement of this this one person's entire worldview. And that's, that's never been the case with me. I've never seen my vote as 
a full endorsement of an entire candidate. It's always, I've always pictured it as more of a, a kind of a chess move in a, in a very, you know, an iterative game. If we want to try to nudge the, the culture or policy in certain directions, uh, because you're never going get, to get everything away. You can't vote a la carte on, on this issue and that issue and that issue. You usually have to, you know, it's a package deal. And some packages, you know, they all stink, in, in my opinion. They all, they all, they're all terrible, um, but some are less terrible than others. And in the past, you know, I had I had years where I didn't vote. Like last year, I voted for Tulsi Gabbard because I couldn't bring myself to vote for uh, either either Trump or Biden. And uh, this is I've I've sort of decided that I'm I'm most likely it depends on who runs, but I'm I'm most likely going to be voting for a Republican next election. Um, I don't know if that's going to be the truth. It really depends on who who steps up to the plate. Uh, but this isn't me becoming a Republican. I'm not all of a sudden a conservative. My worldview hasn't shifted from one binary, you know, blue <laughs> worldview to an entire red worldview. You know, if we're centrist, we have to acknowledge that we're not that far away from that dividing line. So very small movements in, uh, you know, a party's platform or even our own worldviews can really be enough to just push us on either side of that line. So I could just as easily see myself voting for Democrat in years in the future or going back and forth uh, rather than just sort of being tribal and choosing a party and sticking with it your whole life out of some, some, uh, a sense of fealty or dedication to it. Uh, some, some sort of loyalty. What I try to do is I find my values. I value free speech, uh, free inquiry, I think equal rights is really important. And so I just look for wherever I see those views uh, most clearly manifest. And it's usually never completely clear. Uh, and then I, I vote for wherever I find them. And right now, all things being said, I find that those values are slightly right of center. Uh, so that's probably why I'm going to vote that way, just to shift it back the other way. People try to put these labels on me as, as much as they can, like, oh, you're a this now. It's like, well, no, I actually haven't changed uh, that much at all. Uh, so it's it's been a really big struggle to fight these labels because I get a lot of messages from people saying, like, oh, what happened to you? How could you go to the dark side? It's, nothing's changed. I'm just, it's just one, I'm just one, I mean, I think 161 million people voted in the last election and everyone's losing their minds because I might, one vote might be changing. You know, this is, it's it's all kind of ridiculous. So there are two follow-up questions to this. First, what the sense I get is that there are certain non-negotiables. Everybody has those non-negotiables and their voting patterns are based on those non-negotiables. So from what the sense that I'm getting you from. So maybe in your case, it is free speech. Maybe in your case, it is, you know, this whole transgender ideology business so there might be certain areas where you say that i just can't be dealing with this so would you say that a person's voting patterns are actually based on not on a broad rubric of issues but it is both based more on these non-negotiables where if you're going to hurt my non-negotiable because i have look i've been a political uh, worker in india for 10 11 years and my experience has always been that People really don't think through their voting patterns. They, they they vote a lot on impulses. And the second is what I call these non-negotiables. Like, let, let, 
let me give you an example like in india uh, india uh, you know people i don't know if people may know india is a majority hindu country so so the reason the indian political landscape changed was because the entire political discourse in india became too much of a at least in the eyes of a certain percentage of hindus to hindu bashing now somebody from the indian left might say no we don't bash hinduism and that's fine that's their point of view but in the eyes of a sufficient number of hindus it became too much about bashing the hindu bashing hindu iconography bashing hindu symbols bashing the hindu religion while mollycoddling let's say other minority religions and that created the space for a political outfit which said we're not going to do that and that's how it comes so it was a non negotiable for a certain number of people that look we can take a lot of these things and uh, like for you know indians are pretty much left on economics all indian political outfits are left on when it comes to economics the only differences in india are on the cultural issues there is no difference on the economic issue you can literally pick up a policy paper and if i remove the name of the political outfit you cannot differentiate one from the other in india that's how same they are all of them mm. not one all of them so like that's why americans get very confused with indian politics is because they think how can this be the right wing of india that is such a left wing thing to do but so do you think that in your case the current american left is actually violating in some way those non negotiables for you yeah i mean i think the way people vote i think is a combination of their upbringing i'm sure they're their parents are going to have an influence on it. Uh there is evidence that it is there's a genetic component too or you they've done like twin studies where they've looked at the ways people vote and it's you're more likely to vote the way that your uh your biological parent voted even if you were raised outside of your uh the home of your biological parents if you're adopted. Uh so there's there is some sort of uh you know natural component to how people vote but I think a lot of it um it might start out at least for me it started out as i identified where my values were um and the reason i changed is because i saw those values expressed somewhere else i think a lot of people they'll start voting one way and then that's all they're used to and they sort of get this kind of loyalty to it it's they really drill down in the united states on the tribalism so you're just you're constantly rattling your sabers and grabbing your torches against the other side there's so much demonization going where it's not even just you know changing your vote but you're changing your social environment you're changing the way that your peers are going to view you they're going to if they demonize the other side so bad you say that you might change your vote now they're going to see like oh my god what happened to you you you've now all of a sudden like when i when i made my my tweet thread people say oh so you don't like democracy anymore like they'll put you in these boxes like no of course i would like democracy like oh so you you know you want to overthrow the government like, no like this is so they'll immediately go to these extremes um and so you're giving up a lot more than just a vote it's 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 a social environment you you're going to be ostracized from your family and friends and i i really think we need to just move away from this tendency to identify with a certain political party uh because the reason we have so much tribalism is because people have made identities out of their politics out of a certain party and then so when you attack their party it's not even felt as oh you're attacking my ideas they they just see it as a personal attack on on them as as a a a being as as you know attack on their their person so i've never felt like i had any sort of allegiance or identified with 
any party. I try to keep my identity as small as possible. Like, I don't even know what people really mean when they say they identify with something. I just, I just like to things make sense and then I'll go that direction. You know, uh, I don't even identify with things like, you know, I consider myself an atheist. I don't identify as one. It's just a conclusion I came to based on my uh, assessment of the, the evidence and that could change in the future. Uh, <laughs> and I think in the US you have this major problem it seems to be spreading too of people just making an identity out of absolutely everything in their world. And then this makes it impossible for them to change their mind on anything without having an identity crisis. So that, that's what I'm trying to, to tell people is, you know, you just keep your identity as small as possible. Uh, don't have these stupid political loyalties because, you know, you need to be able to change your mind and not, not have this, just have your whole world crash around you. So, so do you think then it is safer for people who are centrists in the in the mapping way um, to always vote for the cultural heterodoxy? Uh, and I'll explain what I mean by the cultural heterodoxy. So it, let's say in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, I definitely feel the American right was the cultural heterodoxy when it comes to the McCarthyism era. And even after that, you know, the whole narrative on the war on drugs, that was a very right wing thing. That was not something that the left, the American left was always about freedom. And that's why you see, you know, people in the ACLU start standing up for white supremacists and uh, standing up for free speech. So do you think what has happened over the years is the the American left actually won? And now they are the cultural orthodoxy and somehow they did not get the memo that they won. And they still think in their head it is their job to agitate against bad things. And I'm not saying America is perfect by far. Uh, that's not my uh, insinuation. But it's pretty damn good. Like, uh, you know, I was telling this to another person on the podcast where I was like, you know, if you have to come up with microaggressions, you have reached a certain point in your life where you really don't have shit to come up with. Like, yeah. you know, we have aggressions in India. You have <laughs> microaggressions. Yeah, yeah, you have to yeah. find the micro. If you run out of the macro aggressions, then you have to search for micro, and then we'll get to like you know nano aggressions and go down the whole the whole list of That's the whole point. So do pico you aggression. Then, <laughs> then, then is it more safer for people who who are centrist as a default mode keep changing their voting patterns because their non-negotiables center around a very heterodox way of living their life where you always challenge the narrative even yeah the risk that runs into is you become a conspiracy theorist sometimes where you see a con government conspiracy in everything which is you know the far right or uh, or the far libertarian anarchist uh, version sometimes that runs into the government is listening to everything I, I know the pitfalls there but still do you think then the centrist should always look at it from this prism which side is the political heterodoxy I'm going to vote for the heterodoxy. I don't care whether it's right or left to maintain a semblance of balance in society. So I wouldn't say that I would vote just for whoever's heterodox. You know, there's, I, I found myself sort of in this crowd of people who consider themselves heterodox, but it's, it's always heterodox with respect to what. And, you know, my views used to be on, you know, uh, on gay rights, for instance, back before, you know, the great awakening, as they call it, 
were quite orthodox, you know, that I was for gay marriage and then there was gay marriage became the law of the land and that's the orthodox view. And I'm still, that's still my view. I, I think gay marriage is a good thing. Uh, so I, I don't really look at which ideas are heterodox or orthodox before I decide which ones I'm gonna, I'm gonna choose to, to root for. Um, I just, I guess what I, what I want to do is not have any of these positions or views be taken off the table and, you know, people try to censor which ideas are allowed uh, into the, the conversation in the first place. Um, but I'm perfectly fine to take up orthodox views if I think that that's the correct view to take uh, on, on a certain issue. Uh, for me, it's just issue by issue. I, I just don't have a problem with disagreeing with people. And I find that the people who are in the center are the people that I can disagree with. And they're fine because they're used to being disagreed with. They're used to running into people who don't agree on everything. And so it's not this jolt to them uh, when, whenever they meet someone who has opposing views. When I told people I was changing my vote back and forth, the people that I've surrounded myself on Twitter, you know, half of them were like, well, I disagree, but you know, I, I see, I see wh why you're doing it. I understand your reasoning. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with it. I think you should put more weight on X, Y, or Z. And I'll even respond, oh, I, I see what you're saying too, but I just think, you know, ABC is more important maybe. So, and this is how it should be. You know, this isn't, this isn't warring, warring tribes, or at least it shouldn't be. So uh, yeah, I just try to find where, where my ideas, my values are, are most clearly expressed. And that's, that's what I try to try to go with. Yeah. So, so I guess what I was trying to say is that when it comes to the orthodoxy, right? The orthodoxy by nature does not like change. The orthodoxy by nature then uh, uh, would not like free speech because that would challenge the, the status quo yeah. of the orthodoxy, which is why the heterodoxy would always stand with free speech because that gives them the chance. That's true. Of being heterodox, right? Yeah, that's, that's a good point because you have, you know, the left when they were considered the heterodox, they that's when they were all for free speech. But once they have this, cultural uh momentum and they they sort of have the power in the institutions it's in their best interest not to give people a platform like they why would they want someone who's willing to debate go up on stage with them they just have everything to lose at that point so it makes sense in 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 sort of a power dynamic uh um, in, interpretation um but it doesn't make sense if you're actually interested in truth and progress in any in any real sense um, and they have, you know, the marketplace of ideas type of type of environment. So, uh, so yeah, the, all the incentives um, are pointing and I think explain a lot of why we're seeing this difference in uh, this approach to free speech now as opposed to, you know, in the past when when the the, the rules were flipped. Mm -hmm. So so another thing on on voting patterns here. So obviously it's far more nuanced right so so one could be uh, someone who's voting republican or democrat at the federal level but at the level of the state or just for their i guess i don't know what they call it in america we call it a municipal corporation over here where just you your counselor local municipal counselor so maybe you could vote for x at a municipal level at the state level you could vote for y and then again you go for x at the federal level now now, why is it, why is the discourse around the world, and, and I find this very interesting, I, I clearly remember a, a few years ago, sitting with a member of parliament in India, and that parliamentarian <laughs> very clearly told me, look, 
when you look at the federal level, you have to look at maybe larger issues and party affiliations. But I think the more you go down, you should only look at the individual and not, mm-hmm. not at the party mm-hmm. affiliation because after a while, party affiliations don't matter because the issues that are dealt with by the person lower down the rung are more directly affecting your life than anything else. But why do you think your voting patterns at a federal level take take up all the space as if, you know, what if you're a Republican at the municipal level and a Democrat at the national level, as if that doesn't matter? Yeah, I think people are a little more likely to not vote according to, you know, to, to, have their vote differ from what they vote on the the federal level, um, at the at the at the state and local municipality level. Uh, that's what that's what I did. I think I, if I can remember, I voted for Tulsi Gabbard for president. Um, but I think what's I was living in Pennsylvania. I'm pretty sure for like the local races, I voted uh, I voted Republican on those. So I split my vote on the different levels, and uh, I think. The evidence suggests that people tend to to do that more with their local issues. Like they're they're more likely to 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 sw- switch their vote, uh, but it's more polarized at the at the federal level. So yeah, that's I think that's the that's the case. So, so then, Colin, how do we deal with this problem in American politics or in American social life? Then, where, like I started, the ideologue is more driven now. You, you're constantly involved in in this entire culture war when it comes to trans issues. Now, uh, I was I was recently reading up uh, uh, a few articles again about I think it was uh, which state was it? Where was the recent uh, election held? And that's where these these issues in class about critical race theory were there. I'm very I think bad that was Virginia, I think. Yeah, Virginia. Yeah, I, yeah. So Asra Numani. Yeah. I think Asra Numani was there, right? Asra Numani. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She's great. So, so, so now here's the thing. Now, um, do you think that the only way to to counter this driven ideological group that that wants to impose a certain worldview on everyone? Now, I don't even want to get into the merits or demerits of whether that worldview is right or wrong, because to uh, to, to be very honest, uh, I'm an outsider in this fight. I, I, I really don't like to take sides in this case, although I have a side, but I still would refrain from uh, saying it uh, at this point of time. But uh, do you think, especially when it comes to schools, what I have noticed is that there's only one group of people who are as driven as the ideologues on the left, and that is parents. Now, and here's my hypothesis: like parents would do anything for a child. I mean, I, I mean, I'm 40 years old, but I know my parents would do anything for me even today. Like even to this date, if mm-hmm. something happens to me, that's like my parents' Achilles heel. They will drop everything and they'll come for me. So imagine if you're a parent of a three or a four-year-old and you you find out that your kid is being taught, I and I say this with full responsibility, literally absurd things in, in your school. So do you think this this whole vocopolis or, or a couple, you know, whatever you want to call it, this woke way of teaching people, so do you think they're finally, in a way, in the political and social sphere, met the one group that is as driven as them? And who's going to maybe challenge them and beat them? Yeah, I really do. 
I think yeah, you're not going to find anyone more motivated than than the parents because they're they're giving up their child for many hours out of the day to go into you know what is essentially a state sponsored organization. And if the parents are thinking that their kids are being indoctrinated into quite literally insane worldviews, not just on issues of of race and you know learning to split kids up into oppressor or oppressed and literally just segregating them by race uh, or having them talk about their identities in a way and then you know associating those with negative or positive traits you know it's, it's just creating these divides we're, we're putting more social significance in race and then telling everyone to be less racist i just don't see how that's a winning combination and then on the issues that i focus on more that i think are even more troubling and this is this isn't to say that the whole critical race stuff isn't super troubling but even more troubling is the whole gender ideology where you know, your if your kid is not maximally, you know, your boy is not maximally masculine, or your, your little girl is not maximally feminine, they're being told that you know maybe they've been born in the wrong body, or that they're, you know, they're non-binary, and that they can be put on puberty blockers, and you know, this this is a, a dark pathway to to cross sex hormones and and you know, reconstructive surgeries, uh, not not even being hyperbolic. This is literally happening in in many states across the United States. So I'm not a parent yet. I, I plan to be at some point, but I'm almost certain that I'm going to homeschool my kids uh, if the whole gender ideology and critical race stuff is still in full swing by the time my kids are old enough to be in a public school. I, I just can't in my right mind, in, my, in good conscience, put them in an environment like that. I'd rather have my kids go to a Catholic school that's not woke and they're learning young earth creationism all day. And I'm saying this as an evolutionary biologist who spent a long time of my life fighting back against that stuff, because I think I can correct that at home. That's just false information. Those are just facts. And I think I could, you know, if, if they're being taught these, you know, religious ideas or just factually incorrect things about the origin of life or something, I can, <laughs> I can counterbalance that. But what the kids are being taught isn't just facts in differences in fact it's a whole different world view it's an approach uh to the material world it's it's to to try to blur all boundaries between things and have knowledge be uh based on social consensus uh that's constructed between uh between groups rather than something that exists you know apart from minds this is just insane stuff and um when, when you get this these sort of mind worms in kids at a young age I just think it's a lot harder to, to to root out, especially when you have them in the state coming in who might tell you that if you're not using this new name that they've given your child at the school, that you're you're committing child abuse. And in places like Canada, you can even have your kid taken away if you're not using your kid's correct pronouns. So this is it's 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 beyond insane. So yeah, I'm I'm gonna opt out of of public school um, for my kids, at least if it's if things haven't dramatically improved uh, by then. But do you see a huge political backlash in in your view against all of this? Let's say in in the midterms in two thousand and twenty two. Yeah, I, I do think that the Virginia um, votes. I, I think there's going to be a massive red wave. I know people always say like it's going to be a huge wave. I really do think it's going to be this time, and I think that education is going to be the big issue. When you looked when they pulled the the people in Virginia about like the biggest issues and why they voted a certain way. It was just like education was by far the, uh, the number one thing that they were most concerned about. And I think people like Chris Rufo 
uh, he's doing a really good job of making this the new platform of uh, of the conservatives. Love him or hate him, he gets he gets a lot done. You know, I don't agree with his tactics across the board, um, but I think there's a place for the Christopher Rufos in the world. I think there's a place for uh, you know, I guess people like me. I, I work for an organization called Fair now, the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, and we just try to take a really bipartisan or sorry, nonpartisan approach to everything. We just try to split it down the middle as, as much as we can, you know, without sacrificing actual values that we have. Um, super concerned about whether or not we anything in our newsletter is going to be perceived as being from a right or left-wing perspective, you know, and I think there's a place for that type of nuance to sort of reach those fence-sitting undecided individuals. Um, I always try to model you know, a, a reasonable person online and I don't lose my mind in, in online debates because I'm, I'm usually not trying to change the mind of the individuals I'm engaging. I'm, I'm trying to set an example. So if there's a bunch of lurkers out there on Twitter who aren't really tweeting, you know, they can see where the reasonable person is in this debate. And hopefully they're re them reading what I'm putting out there is going to uh, make them think that I'm not the insane one. So yeah, there's, there's, a, there's an attack um, we, we need to push on two different fronts. There's like the cultural uh, front that's actually going to make the long-term change. Uh, and then there's what Rufo is doing and other people where they're trying to really do the legal front. They're trying to do more of a top-down approach. And I think both of those are necessary. Um, but uh, some people kind of want to just do all one or the other. And I think we need to stop have that battle because really it's, it's going to take both to to get the job done in the end. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm actually genuinely keen. So, so can you tell me a little bit more about uh, this organization that you've just started working for the foundation of uh, foundation against intolerance and racism? Yeah. Yeah. So it was started by a guy named Bayon Bartning. He's, he's the president founder of fair. He uh, had his kids in a private school in New York and where he first saw this, sort of segregating their kids by race and drilling down on their racial identities and sort of having the kids police each other's identities uh, and, and call out people uh, as being oppressed or oppressed. The whole, you know, the whole insanity that we're seeing everywhere. And he was in a good position to actually do something about it. He's an independently wealthy person. So he decided that he was just going to make a foundation so he did. It's got an amazing board of advisors. It's got John McWhorter, Steven Pinker, uh, Glenn Lowry. You know, there's M Melissa Chen, Peter Bogosian, a bunch of people. There, it's an amazing board of directors, uh, or its board of advisors. And yeah, we're we're making all kinds of good videos on really specific issues. Uh, I did a video myself in LA, we'll green screen and everything about diversity, equity, and inclusion statements, and that should be out any day now. I think. Uh, and we have a lot of content coming out. We we sort of give organizations and you know universities, corporations alternative diversity trainings that they want that aren't based in you know the whole critical race theory type thing. We're not trying to divide people. It's it's based on sort of the premise of common humanity, uh, and, and and trying to focus on our similarities rather than drill down on our differences. Uh, we offer school curricula as well for for schools that want to you know take up um 
you know, an alternative to a lot of the ways that they're teaching racial issues in, in class. Uh, we have a thing called Fair Story, which is uh, a kind of a history curricula for schools that doesn't shy away from, you know, the, the dark aspects of, you know, American history like slavery and the how evil and terrible that was. You know, we're, we don't want to, contrary to what people say, they'll say that, you know, these people just don't want to teach about slavery. No, we approach it head on and we're not going to beat around the bush of how horrible it was. Uh, but then we also make the case for, you know, there is a long history of the civil rights movement that, you know, we we overturned slavery. Black people got the right to vote. Women got the right to vote. There's a lot to celebrate in terms of American progress and drilling down on the ideals of the founding of America, uh, of extending equality to to everyone. So, um, so yeah. So it's it's taking the good with the bad. We try to really do a full rounded story. And I, I think it's just a fantastic organization. We're really gaining momentum and people should check it out for sure. Fair. Sure. Uh, yeah, I'll definitely, uh, uh, you know, leave a link in the description of the podcast for the for, for that. But but then, so you just spoke about this whole racism narrative. Now, now so where, where did the idea of, Asians in general, and, and I find it very interesting. In, in America, Indians are not considered Asian, but India is a part of the Asian continent. I, it never it never registered with me, but it's very weird. But Asians are Southeast Asians, and then there are what they call South Asians, which is the Indian subcontinent, which is India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Myanmar, and all these countries. And it's I don't know why, but so when did they become white adjacent? Like, look at me. I'm, I'm not white, but... <laughs> I, so so when yeah. did this happen this happened very recently you know there's even been uh documents that come out where they say what what, what is the term they used it was just like minorities except asian or something like that and they, they're just basically in order to get the disparities that they that they want you know, they, they want to act like everything is you know whites versus people of color uh but they almost never in those comparisons include Asians in there because if you include East Asians, they're always, you know, usually higher up on every single metric of success than white people are. So it's kind of counterintuitive to say that this is a society built on white supremacy that doesn't even put white people at the very top of the of the, the totem pole. And even, you know, you can look at other sort of groupings where Nigerian Americans uh, who are 99.9% black they're doing better than, than white people on average across the board as well. So yeah, there's a lot of um, things that sort of collapse their narrative. And uh, we're seeing basically success being equated with quote unquote whiteness, where if you're succeeding in a white supremacist society, it's it's because you've, you've nestled up to, to the white people in a certain way and you're, you're getting their breadcrumbs and in many sense somehow exceeding exceeding it by uh using well th this is in the, in the case of jewish americans they're they're seen as being almost you know the the most white because they have white skin yet they can also claim oppression and so they have like these it's a double whammy they're they get the the privilege of white skin and they also get to like go on the offensive by telling people that they're they're oppressed, and so they're now being construed as, you know, the the, the ultra white, even though there's a lot of white supremacists who would beg to differ <laughs> about whether Jews are considered white. So 
it all doesn't make any sense. It's completely insane. Um, but this is what you get when you're just sort of trying to force uh, a complex reality into a very uh, janky makeshift narrative that doesn't even have a chance of being uh, correct at, at at any sort of small scale, much less large scale. So it's, yeah. So, so sitting outside over here, I mean, I, I can't say in this case that I don't have any skin in the game because I do have family in the United States of America. So I do have skin in the game. It's almost as if the Americans created a system where you come to America, you use the system and then let the chips fall wherever they do. The the Indian American community, which now from what I have understood is uh, the richest community when it comes to minorities in the United States of America, they went there, they looked at the system, they played by the rules and they succeeded. Now, the oppression narrative was like, you are suppressed by the skin color, but then obviously, you know, people on that oppose them could have always said, look at their skin color. They came up, look at the Nigerians, they came up. So instead of finding flaws within their own model, what they have done is they've said, oh, these are white adjacent and Nigerian Americans would now, what they, they would call them like Larry Elder was called by the LA Times, the the white face of or the black face of white supremacy i guess right yeah. that's what they would do now so so in in such a scenario where it is so obviously disingenuous and it's obviously flawed that because you found a flaw in my model and this this takes me back to the old debates between creationism and evolution is that every time an evolutionary evolutionary biologist would find the flaw in the creationist narrative they would change the goalpost itself. They would not answer the evolutionary biologists. They would change the goalpost. And this is exactly what has happened. And it's almost as if, you know, the Asian community or the Indian community or the Nigerian Americans, they're just collateral damage because you don't fit the narrative. So we just typecast you in something else. And do they realize that it could actually damage kids in those communities? I don't think, I really don't think they've given it much thought, honestly. You know, I, I've, I've extended the principle of charity to their worldview so many times only to be, to find out this, it's based on almost nothing but just a, a, a narrative that's enforced by uh, just social policing within their, within, among their ranks, um, where everyone's basically too afraid to, to be out of step with it. And um, that's what I found to be the most smothering aspect when I was in academia uh, trying to get by and not drive myself completely crazy when people were saying that, you know, sex isn't real. Uh, it was, it's, there's this intense social policing going on and it's almost, you know, we have John McWhorter wrote a book called woke racism where he compares, doesn't just compare wokeism to a religion, but he says it literally is one. And I, I can, I can see this. It has many of the same aspects, um, of, of this mutual policing, this, these certain codes of behavior that you need to go by, these uh, these unfalsifiable beliefs that are unmeasurable, but you know they're con considered to be uh, everywhere and omnipresent, such as you know structural racism is everywhere. You, you do it's kind of in the water, it's in the air. Uh, they might have one example or something about you know what about the experiment where people sent out. Uh, job applications with black sounding names and so they got less phone calls you know they'll use these these examples to then just make these all-encompassing broad claims about society uh even when 
it's almost certainly not true in in the grand scale of things. And the, to me, the approach needs to be, you know, if you think that there's structural racism, it's to to point to it and root out those little bits. What are the laws that are causing that you think are racist? What are the policies that are causing these disparities that you think are racist? Is it actually based on race or is it actually based on class? And race is just correlated with it because race is correlated with class. These are the questions we need to ask. <laughs> we can't just have, you know, the current situation where we're looking at disparities and saying that any disparity between groups is de facto evidence of the structural oppression and structural racism. Because that's it's just the laziest type of analysis you can do. Uh, the laziest and easiest and most easily abused, I think, as well. Yeah, it's it's just disappointing. Um, I I look at it uh, sitting over here, and and the funniest part is I wouldn't. I've been very open about it. I would never vote for the American left. I never have. But I'm not someone who's on the left. I've always leaned libertarian in my life, so I'm I'm pretty clear. I don't like Trump either. I was never a Trump fan. I <laughs> Me neither. I didn't I didn't I, vote for him. <laughs> yeah, so I I find him entertaining. Yeah. I, I would always say this. I mean, the, that tweet about Denmark, you know, putting the Trump Tower, that was gold. I mean, that was funny. <laughs> he was funny. Greenland, sorry, Greenland, Greenland. Yeah, sorry. yeah. Greenland, yeah. That was funny. So I have to give it to him. He was funny, yeah. but he should, you know, not presidential material, but that that's a separate issue. But but this concerns me. Yeah, it, I'm not going to lie. At the end of the day, I've got family in the United States of America. I have friends in the United States of America and if uh, you know this kind of a, of a, of a, of a stupid policy is going to come up and what the irony is that people don't realize that at least 85 to 90% of indian americans have always voted for the democrats always by default they've been going and and i don't know how many people realize that there's a huge change coming in that community itself i think in the last election that must have come down to 65% to 70% and I won't be surprised it goes to a 50-50 ratio because if you're going to tell somebody's child that, oh, you know, you are the face of white supremacy in some weird way because your parents came here, they worked hard and they made money now, now too bad. I think they're not going to vote for you. But anyways, uh, I'm conscious of your time, Colin. So, so we'll wrap things up. So before we wrap it up, you know, uh, any any last words that you would want to say? You know, uh, not too much to add on to what we've already already covered here. Um, I guess you know, if people want to follow more of my stuff, they can go to my my Substack, which is realitieslaststand.com. You can follow me on Twitter at swipe right. That's swipe and then W R I G H T, my last name. Um, same on Instagram, same on Clubhouse, etc. Uh, and yeah, there's going to be some interesting developments coming out uh, in the near future. Um, which I'm actually excited about because for the longest time we've talked about having no real good papers to cite that are that are criticizing the whole sex as a spectrum uh, argument. And I've recently been contacted by several uh, high impact scientific journals that want me to actually write those articles for them. Wow. So finally, we're, it looks like we're going to be having uh, an actual scientific argument, but I do think it's really indicative of the time where, you know, I'm actually not the most qualified person to write these articles because I studied social insect behavior for my PhD. Uh, but it really goes to show that they can't find anybody who's currently in academia who studies, you know, development or hormones who's willing to write this paper because it would be 
you know, career suicide for a lot of these people to to come out and say that stuff. But I'm actually worried for the editors who are who've approached me about this. Um, but anyway, that's that's going to be a development. I'm not sure when that's going to come out. Sometimes the review process takes a while, but that's uh, that's in the pipeline. So I'm excited about that. I'll let you know when that, that comes out. That that's good to hear. Actually, that's that's the best news uh, as far as I'm concerned. Because at the end of the day, we, we yeah, have, yeah. you know, if we can't live our lives based on reality, then what the hell are we really doing over here? Yeah. I think it's you and maybe even Deborah. So, but Deborah is also outside the academy, right? She's not inside the academy. I think. Yeah, so, I'm actually going to yeah. try to contact Richard Dawkins because he just has been tweeting. He's been, uh, I don't know what pill it is now, uh, and trans pilled or something. He's He's basically come out and he he recently read Kathleen Stock's book Material Girls, that is a, a major takedown of gender ideology and a and a advocates for sex based rights. And so Dawkins has been he just finished reading that book, so he's he's fully on board uh, now. So maybe I can get him as a co author. That actually would be a really big dream of mine because Dawkins is one of the most influential people in my life. And if I could be, you know, if I could entice him to to be a co-author on a paper on this stuff with me, that'd be that'd be pretty amazing. So we'll see. It might be a long shot, but you never know. Yeah, I just saw Matt Dillahunty call him a transphobe. Oh so. my god. <laughs> so sad. So pathetic. <laughs> and on that positive note, we'll end today's podcast. Uh Colin, thanks a lot for coming. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thank you. Really appreciate it. All right, guys, we'll wrap today's discussion up. So please uh, go and follow Colin on Twitter and join his Substack. And if you want to buy that mug, you can go and buy. I'll leave all the links uh, in the description of the podcast, whether you're listening to the uh, audio version or you're watching this over here on YouTube. Uh, and please support the podcast. Uh, you know, like the channel, subscribe to the channel, like the video, leave a comment. You know the drill. I'll see you guys next time. Until then, take care. Goodbye. Goodbye.